Welcome to Travels in the Mathematical World, a podcast from the Institute of Mathematics and its applications, the IMA. This is episode 36. Uh, besides 1, which is trivial, um, 36 is the smallest number, which is both square and triangular. Okay, this week is Maths News Week on the podcast, and so, uh, as usual, I sat down with Sarah Shepard at the University of Nottingham, and uh, we talked through some of the stories that have been in the news. Uh, we start with one of the most pressing issues of the day. I have this that I picked out. Uh, the student's performance ends up looking just like a monkey's. I think it's an excellent <laughs> quote. So this is, this is a piece in The New Scientist uh, called Animals That Count, How Numeracy Evolved. Uh, and it's quite interesting. It, it starts out with a story about a horse who used to be able to stamp out answers to arithmetic questions, and it turned out that the, the owner was giving an unconscious clue to the horse as when to stop stamping. Uh, but it says that, you know, the theory that animals could do arithmetic stopped there, but these days things have evolved a bit. It says, few now doubt that primates have a sense of number, and even distantly related animals, including salamanders, honeybees, and newly hatched chicks, uh, which we had on a couple of times ago yeah. on the Matthews podcast, uh, seem to have the knack, with some able to perform basic arithmetic. Uh, what's more... The skills of this growing mathematical menagerie resemble our own innate abilities, and it asks, could basic mathematics have evolved hundreds of millions of years ago? Um, so yes, it, it, basically it reports on a few different studies looking at different animal types, and one of those was comparing... It, it was looking at whether you can recognise, or how quickly you can recognise, which is the larger number of objects. Um, and this is the one that took university students and monkeys <laughs> and leads to this quote. The student's performance ended up looking just like a monkey's. She's Elizabeth Brannan, a psychologist at Duke University. Uh, it does say, without language or precise symbolic system to represent the numbers, animals' numerical abilities will never reach human levels, uh, but some are able to do basic arithmetic or distinguish between larger and smaller numbers, that sort of thing. Um, other animal news <laughs> I have is from BBC Manchester. Um, there's a fish called the Black Ghost Knife Fish, which is a very exciting name, uh, which is apparently a popular tropical fish. I've never heard of it. Um, it's one of a small number of fish that can generate electric fields around them. And Professor Bill Lionheart at the University of Manchester is interested in how they do it. Uh, so he said, these fish put out an electrical signal and measure that to see whether it's something they would like to eat or something that's going to eat them. He is working on electrical impedance tomography, EIT, um, to see hidden, it says here, to see things hidden in the human body. Uh, and he's trying to learn how the fish does it so efficiently and quickly. Uh, he's quoted as saying, uh, the fish has quite a small brain, and yet he's still able to process this quite quickly. Um, it has uses, for example, engineers use EIT to look inside gas and oil pipelines, and apparently similar mathematics is used in 3D airport body scanners. But um, importantly, it says EIT can be used to monitor lungs in intensive care patients and medical professionals have been invited to a special session at the University of Manchester that focuses on using the technology for lung imaging. So I've got an article about traffic jams. Um, mathematicians at MIT have developed a model to describe jamitons, which are um, apparently traffic jams that have no obvious cause. These jamitons, or phantom jams, can form when there is a high density of traffic. Uh, small disturbances, like one driver braking too hard, are quickly amplified, which results in full-blown traffic jams. 
The team at MIT discovered that the mathematics of jamitons is similar to that used to describe detonation waves produced by explosions. So, uh, using this, they were able to solve the equations for such traffic jams, which model jamitons as a self-sustaining wave. The model could help engineers design roads that minimise the occurrence of phantom traffic jams by keeping traffic density sufficiently low, and it could also help determine safe speed limits on roads where traffic density is high. This is interesting because it's this thing about there are some situations where if everyone drove at 50, you would all get there quicker than people trying to drive 70 and then getting stuck at zero for fast yeah. periods, isn't it? It's a very odd system, traffic. I seem to remember part of the, part of the article that I read about that was, uh, I don't think it was the same group, but somebody else had done an experiment, uh, literally an experiment, where they'd got drivers to drive around a circular track yeah, um, and told them all to drive at a constant like speed in it. Yeah. yeah, I think the point is that it only needs a very small disturbance. Mm. Yes. for everything to yes. completely block up. And then once it's once there's a traffic jam, it's harder to get rid of it than mm. it is to create it in the first place. Yeah. Uh, the BBC have an interesting piece following an episode of uh, the More or Less radio show, which looks at the mathematics or not behind uh, Deal or No Deal television programme. Apparently economists have studied the behaviour of the contestants. One idea is that people become less pu- less cautious about risk after some early bad luck, uh, and many do not, do not get bogged down in probability calculations, it says. They talk to people who suggest that they re- who, or who are on the show who suggest that they rely on luck. It says those involved with the show acknowledge the contestants use a mixture of calculation, superstition and brinkmanship. Uh, it's all about the, It's about all those things, says Noel Edmonds. Uh, the presenter of the show, it's got a massive psychology behind it. And then it says, if you watch Deal or No Deal with a mathematical eye, you'll pretty soon see that many of the contestants have strange beliefs and little interest in figuring the odds. Uh, but perhaps that's not the fault of the game. We can be funny creatures when it comes to numbers. I saw a good piece in the New Scientist, an interesting interview with Dara Breen, the comedian, um, who you may or may not know has a mathematical physics background. And he talks about his background, what brought him to comedy and uh, also his dislike of pseudoscience. Oh, he talks about the similarities or not between mathematics and comedy, uh, and he talks about the issues that come up when a science story um, comes up on the satirical show, he presents Mock of the Week, and he never knows whether to correct the incorrect science or just to go with the joke. Uh, and he talks about how he, he quite likes um, science communication, I think. He, he ends by saying, uh, does that mean I'm going to turn into Johnny Ball one day? Who knows? Right. So I have a few stories around gender. Uh, There was an article in The Guardian reporting on a Higher Education Policy Institute report which suggested that GCSEs, um, which were brought in in the late 1980s in place of O-levels, appear to favour girls because of their style of teaching content type of question. Um, So the study cited another study um, in which 13,000 15-year-olds sat alternative tests in reading, maths and science. And girls scored better in reading, but boys got more correct answers in maths and science. When the same people sat GCSEs, the girls did better in all subjects, it says. Uh, however, the author of the report says um, exams aren't entirely to blame because there are gender gap differences in, in various countries. Uh, and then, however, the next story that came up was gender gap the other way around, uh, talking about the stereotype that females lack the innate ability to match males at the highest levels of mathematics. It claims there is an ingrained belief among very well-educated people uh, that this idea is true, that the superior male achievement in, in mathematics. In the US, men earn 70% of the PhDs in mathematical sciences. 
uh, although that was at, at 95% in the 1950s. And a study of mathematically precocious young people finds that boys outnumbered girls. 2.8 to 1 in 2005, although that was down from 13 to 1 a quarter century earlier. And finally, a third piece that suggests that this gap, well, it, it seems to assume that this gap is, exists and says that it's due to social factors rather than biological differences. So history has had no shortage of outstanding female mathematicians, uh, yet no woman has ever won the Fields Medal, the Nobel Prize in the Maths world. The fact that men outnumber women in the highest echelons of mathematics, as in science, technology and engineering, has always been controversial, particularly for the persistent notion that this disparity is down to an innate biological advantage. Yeah, this article, so they, they studied the question of whether, of whether the gender gap is due to an innate inability of, of women to do maths or whether it's um, just a cultural thing. And they've come to the conclusion that um, it probably is just due to culture. Hmm. Anyway, I just thought it was interesting that in one article it's boys are not doing as well as girls in mathematics and on the other it's why are girls so disadvantaged in mathematics. It just seems interesting. Yeah, well, they've shown that it's different in different countries. I think that's the point there. Um, in the UK boys outperform girls, but in other countries, so for example Turkey, Greece um, and Asian countries, girls actually outperform boys. I find it a very interesting issue, but kind of shy away from too much. I mean, I don't know like numbers, because a lot of students I meet, there doesn't seem to be a definite gender bias in the students I meet when I travel around, for example. You know, well, no, there, are, there was data on, on this, and mm. um, at, at, say, undergraduate level, the proportions of men and women are, are starting to tend towards 50%. Right. Whereas if you go up and look at how many math professors there are, mm. then there's a tiny number of, of female yeah. math professors. Yeah. So it's different at different levels. Mm. And whether that's just because, whether the people who are now at undergraduate level will go through and it will become more even. Yeah, I mean, um, that's a possibility. Other people might say it's because women aren't capable of succeeding at yes. <laughs> so, the highest levels. But There's also a general gender bias in the employment market, isn't there? Men in top jobs and that sort of thing. There yeah, seems to be a yeah. general sort of problem. So in finding stories for the podcast, I'm searching for maths in news sites. And there seem to be a whole swathe of mathematicians, mathematician sportsmen. So Leeds have a rugby player, Ryan Hall who was on his way to university to do mathematics when Leeds called him up to the, to the squad. Um, so Chris Hoy, uh, Olympic gold medalist cyclist, um, is receiving an honorary, honorary degree from St Andrews, where he studied maths and physics uh, in the 1990s. He's going to be made a doctor of science. Claire Taylor is apparently one of the most popular women cricketers in England, and again was a, was a mathematician. And Each of these seems to have a, a bit where they talk about that person being calculating or cool-headed or <laughs> something and how this helps them in their sports. There's a Commonwealth light heavyweight boxer, Nathan Cleverly, who is currently boxing. He feels he's ready to bring home the British light heavyweight title, but he told BBC Radio Wales that his mind is now far from boxing uh, as he's gone back to Cardiff University to continue his mathematics degree. But yes, it just seemed odd. I've not noticed before a whole load of sports people all at once yeah. being talked about as being... Mathematicians. So I think definitely uh, mathematics is what you need to do if you want to be a famous sportsman. It's obviously the conclusion to draw. <laughs> <laughs> I've only got one more. I'm intrigued by A-level sat now, yeah. Didn't you see that? No. Okay, I have an article from The Times which says that 
a report by the think tank Reform, says today's teenagers are being spoon-fed A-levels. The report claims that modularising A-levels has reduced students' understanding of the subject they are studying, especially in maths. It says students no longer have to think about what they are doing and examiners are prohibited from exercising judgement. So one of the researchers who contributed to the report is R.A. Bailey, Professor of Statistics at Queen Mary University of London. He said, The most important change is that sitting a mathematics A-level paper is now more like using a sat-nav system than reading a map. The questions in the 2008 paper are heavily structured, and the result is that students will retain very little knowledge and develop very little understanding. The questions include hints and instructions about which method to use. And he added, the questions are mind-numbingly boring, apart from those that are mind-numbingly stupid. We expect our students to take a holistic approach, but it seems they expect it to be compartmentalised. So I have my usual Marcus Asoto roundup. <laughs> His sexy math column in the Times continues, uh, recent features on swine flu and game theory. Uh, not the same one. Oh, and he writes a piece in The Guardian about um, inspiring an interest in mathematics. How do you spark off an interest in maths when the curriculum seems dreary? Uh, it's all about mystery, big stories, and journeys to infinity and beyond. Uh, this is quite interesting. He says he talks about his son. His son is 13. He says, in his English lessons, he spends time learning the grammar and vocabulary of the language, basic necessities for anyone leaving school. But he has also been exposed to some of the great works of literature that have been created using those building blocks. He's already read Richard III, etc. He probably didn't understand the intricate complexities and subtleties of these great works, but he was excited by the contact with such stimulating literature. In mathematics, on the other hand, he says, he has also been learning the basic grammar and vocabulary of the world of numbers, percentages, long divisions, and basic algebra and geometry. Uh, these techniques are also regarded as core skills that every child should leave school with. But the curriculum has not exposed him yet to the creative possibilities of mastering those tools. And nor is the curriculum likely to, even as he advances through the school system. Yeah, that's a very good point. Mm. I mean, we wouldn't keep people away from Shakespeare just because they yeah. maybe couldn't read that well. Yeah. So he says, I'm a maths nerd, I love maths for its own sake. But for others, the subject comes alive when they learn how mathematics is not an isolated subject, but runs seductively below the surface of many other subjects in the curriculum. He says, this is quite interesting, he says, I never understood why education is so compartmentalised. My son looks at his timetable, maths first lesson, history second lesson, music before lunch. The curriculum gives no hint as to how integrated all these subjects are. To look at the historical evolution of mathematical ideas provides an invaluable perspective on why the mathematics was created in the first place. And yes, he says, why can't we include the Shakespeare of maths in the curriculum? I admit it's not for everyone, just as Shakespeare doesn't work for every child. And he rounds it with saying, we're not frightened to throw Richard III at 13-year-olds. Let's be more brave and throw Riemann at them too. And connected to this article, there's also a, a mathematical architectural tour on the Guardian website, uh, which is worth looking at. Eleven images of buildings of mathematical interest. So some of them are mathematical shapes and buildings using interesting ratios. Um, to pointing out the Grand National Roller Coaster at the Pleasure Beach in Blackpool is a Mobius strip. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I have a note that at the end of June is the 2009 Summer Science Exhibition at the Royal Society. Uh, and this, is this includes an exhibit, How Do Shapes Fill Space, by a team led by mathematician Edmund Harris. Uh, this looks at how space can be filled with shapes and what this can tell us about the natural world and medieval art. Uh, it's aimed at, at 
interested adults over the age of 16 with no formal science background or training required. Younger children may also attend if accompanied by an adult. The show, the exhibition runs until the 4th of July. So if you're listening to this podcast just as it's released, you might still have time to pop down. Uh, the details are at summerscience.org.uk. Uh, and either way, I think it's worth visiting the um, exhibition website, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. So the summer issue of I-Squared magazine is now out. Um, it features an interview with crowd modeller Keith Still, and also articles on Archimedes, the financial crisis, and mathematical modeling of water pollution. Uh, so to find out more and order your copy, visit isquaredmagazine.co.uk. Plus magazine have, their, have announced the winners of their new Writers' Award. Um, there are two winners in each of three categories, school, university and the general public, and you can read the articles along with other articles in the latest issue of PLUS. Um, and I wanted to point you towards an interesting blog post that's been put together um, for me by the students at Herrick Watt University uh, about setting up their math society. So this is quite a good, it's quite an interesting thing. If you're a student or going to be a student and your university doesn't have a math society or you're wondering what the math society might do, uh, this is quite good because it goes through what they went through trying to set it up. And if you're in that position come the autumn, um, there's information on the IMA website about grants for groups like that, for student mathematics societies and universities. Right, I hope you enjoyed listening to that. I'll put links to all the stories we mentioned in the show notes for the podcast. You can get the show notes and get other episodes of the podcast by visiting www.travelsinamathematicalworld.co.uk. If you want to get in touch, you can do so through Twitter, uh, twitter.com slash peterrowlett, R-O-W-L-E-T-T. Thank you for listening.